Hardware to Save a Planet explores the technical innovations that are giving us hope in the fight against climate change. Each episode focuses on a specific climate challenge and explores an emerging physical technology solution with the person bringing it into reality. I'm your host, Dylan Garrett. Hello and welcome to Hardware to Save a Planet. I'm very excited to be here with Julian Turacek, the CEO of Aspira DAC. We'll be talking about direct air capture or DAC, which is the process of removing CO2 directly from atmospheric air. DAC is seen as one of the most promising approaches to carbon removal because of the technology readiness level, the ease of monitoring and verifying the process. And when the captured CO2 is stored underground, the confidence in how durably it is removed. But DAC is also a very energy-hungry process, and the industry faces some massive challenges in getting to target scales and price points that experts believe we need to hit. I really like Aspira DAC's approach to addressing those challenges. They use metal organic frameworks, or MOFs, as the absorbent. And I'm hoping, Julian, you can tell us a bit about what that means and they're the only system I'm aware of that has the energy supply integrated alongside the capture technology. I'm excited to learn more about all this from Julian and to also hear his general perspective on climate change. He's been working in the energy sector for almost 30 years. He's managed a clean tech venture capital fund and has deep expertise in carbon markets. He's also my first guest from Australia. So welcome, Julian. It's really an honor to have you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for inviting me, Dylan. It's great to be on your podcast. So just because you're my first guest from Australia, I'm curious to hear a little bit about that and really curious about what the climate tech scene is like there. You and I first met at San Francisco Climate Week, so I know you've kind of seen what the scene is like here in the Bay Area. How does it compare? It's such a big contrast, to be honest. Uh, Each place is very focused on the decarbonizing journey and how we get to net zero by 2050. The carbon removal discussion in the Bay Area, I found very rich, very exciting. Investors, customers, potential suppliers, new technology. The Australian conversation is quite different, to be honest. A lot of the focus is on how do we transform our energy system, starting off with a very sort of coal-heavy grid that we are rapidly building up renewables and storage and shutting down old coal-fired power stations. And a lot of the conversation in Australia is really about that clean energy transition, less focus on carbon removal. So Aspiridac, as far as I'm aware, is the only direct air capture company in Australia, whereas contrast that coming over to San Francisco Climate Week where we met, there's a very rich ecosystem of very many ideas on how to do carbon removal and specifically direct air capture. So the contrast I find very exciting, actually. Okay. Very energizing to be, when I came over for San Francisco Climate Week, to be part of that ecosystem and to be meeting people like yourselves and all the others that are working in this area. Very exciting. Cool. And just about your background a bit, it looks like you started your career as an energy trader, and then you were managing this clean tech venture fund in 2008 to 2011. I'm curious also how things have changed since then. So what were some of the hot investments you were looking at in those days? And what does that look like relative to today? Yeah, my background, as you said, is in the energy industry. So I'm a chemical engineer and commerce 
as my undergrad, but then I did a master's of applied finance, which really picked my interest in the finance side of things and how to fund some of the new innovations. So I'd been in the energy industry for about sort of 10 to 15 years and then switched into Cleantech VC. I think most people would agree that was probably some of the early days of doing Cleantech VC and to do it just on the in the aftermath of the GFC, let's just call it, it was interesting and challenging times. <laughs> some of the investments we made were, again, around renewable energy and those kind of innovations, but also smart grid innovations. And one of the early findings we had was that when you're doing clean tech, it doesn't take too long for it to become capital intensive because ultimately to solve climate change, we have to physically change either the atmosphere or the way we're making energy, or it's actually a physical piece of equipment, very much to the theme of your podcast, Harder yeah, exactly. to Save a Planet. It's harder to save a planet just by doing a software upgrade or putting something in the cloud. And yes, there will be always service offerings based in the SaaS world, but ultimately, if we're trying to solve climate change, we are physically needing to change conditions of the climate. So that requires capital intensity and... Uh, venture funding and capital intensity don't always go hand in hand. So it was an interesting, challenging time. I, after doing four years of venture capital, I went back into the energy industry and started running assets from solar farms, wind farms, and coal and gas-fired power stations. So running big company, effectively up to sort of 500,000 people during an outage. It's been a really rich, diverse career. In the background to that, I was working with uh, two business partners with a company called Corporate Carbon, which is one of Australia's biggest carbon project developers. And we like to incubate new ideas, new technologies. Uh, the first one we did was a company called AgriProof, which is now Australia's largest soil carbon project developer. And then Aspiridac was our very latest incubation, obviously working in direct air capture. So the whole objective of what we're trying to do is get to carbon solutions at the gigaton scale. And having worked in venture capital and seeing what investors look for, building a startup with the perspective of what are investors looking for, I'm finding a very interesting and rich body of thinking to help build a Spiridac. Okay, interesting. So it was incubated inside this other organization you're part of. Yeah, it was incubated inside Corporate Carbon. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was the process to kind of arrive at focusing on direct air capture specifically with this venture? It was actually an interesting insight thinking about what are all the potential carbon solutions to get to a net zero by 2050 world? And what is that supply curve? What is the marginal abatement curve that meets that objective? And we were very conscious that we were positioned at the low cost end of the scale of that curve with things like soil carbon, reforestation, and human induced regeneration, those kind of activities. It was very clear to us that direct air capture and carbon removal is at the other end. It's at the high cost end of the scale, but with potential for the cost to come down. So we feel like strategically we were bridging both ends of that marginal cost curve knowing that there's not much that can be more expensive than direct air capture. So if the challenge is 
let's start there and see how we can bring down the cost. That could almost be the market setting price of carbon removal and carbon action towards 2050. So that was kind of the strategic thought. We also applied for, Corporate Carbon applied for a, a federal government grant under the Carbon Capture Utilisation Storage Development Fund in 2021. And we were successful in being awarded, well, four million Australian, so three million US dollars to actually do a direct air capture project with permanent storage in Australia and demonstrate that that technology and that sort of end-to-end link up. So that's where it all started. And one of the first things we did was a global technology review, looking around the world at everyone that's doing anything in direct air capture. And we started working with a technology that we found here in Australia, which is that solar-powered, modular, MOF-based technology. And that's when we started working on on that and actually making it real and bringing it into the market. So somebody was already working on that solar-powered, MOF-based, modular technology. That's right. It was relatively early stage, but we liked what they were doing and we secured an exclusive license for that technology and then started working collaboratively to bring it to life. Okay, cool. Is Australia a good place for DAC? I mean, I know DAC kind of depends on good storage geology and access to renewables and all that. How does Australia look as a site for DAC? It actually looks really, really, really good. So doing solar-powered direct air capture, we obviously need land for the energy capture field. We need sun for the fuel supply of the solar and we need storage. And Australia's, you won't be surprised to hear, blessed with lots of land, lots of sun and actually lots of storage sites. So when I say lots of land, a lot of Australia is obviously desert. Where we're operating is in places where there's no real other use for the land. So that's ideal or a renewable energy field. And because we're solar powered and effectively off the grid, we can go to exactly where the storage site is. So we don't need to connect to a grid. We can just locate ourselves pretty much on top of the storage site. And there we've located our first project at the site of the first gas storage license for CO2 permanent removal uh, in the middle of Australia. But there are lots of other places around Australia where there's strong potential for permanent storage, either in depleted oil and gas reservoirs or deep saline aquifers. And so there's a large number of potential storage reservoirs around the country, both onshore and offshore. So that makes it a really exciting place to be. And we're contrasting with, obviously, in the US, you've got Class 6 permitting and there's a large number of companies trying to get access to, I suppose at the moment, a small number of wells. It feels like it's the opposite. We've flipped that in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that. (laughs) Obviously in the US, with the Inflation Reduction Act and the direct subsidies, that makes it a very interesting place to do business for US companies in the US with that strong support. We don't have the same policy framework here in Australia. So that's, I suppose, the other side of the coin. But a lot less competition for the storage site, storage capacity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to, we've talked a little bit about DAC on the show with some other companies. You just mentioned the kind of, you were mentioning the cost challenge. We've talked a little bit about the energy challenge too. I'd be curious to get your take on 
even just at a high level, why why is DAC such an expensive uh, approach in all of the pathways that you talked about earlier? That's a very good question, Dylan. I think the starting point is because the technology is new and almost by definition, it's small scale to start with. So that makes costs quite high. And I look at something like the solar PV industry where you rewind 20 years ago, the costs were very high. I remember, say, $350 a megawatt hour. And a lot of people would say, well, why would you bother? It's so much more expensive than existing power supply, which it was. But people could see the potential of it and could see how it could come down in cost. So two decades later, now we're at $35 a megawatt hour, and we've got effectively the cheapest kind of power in the world from solar. That's not what it looked like 20 years ago. Now, obviously, following the DAC cost curve down will be slightly different from following the solar PV cost down. But for us, using the modular approach, I think we can leverage the ideas of solar PV and maybe even also the automotive industry to say costs can come down through global deployment and large-scale manufacture. So we think that there's a possibility of direct air capture following the same path as, say, the solar PV industry. But generically, if you just take a step back and look at what everyone's doing in DAC, obviously costs come down the bigger you get. So when you're at 1,000 tonne a year versus 20,000 tonne a year versus a million tonnes per year, as you go up that volume curve, the costs will come down because you're spreading a, well, you're getting the economies of scale by increasing the size. Right. Okay. So a lot of it is about the producing the capital equipment needed to capture the, the CO2 and just the more things you bought, the more times you build the same thing, the cheaper it gets. Essentially. Yeah. And because we're with Espiridac and the technology we're working with, it's intensely modular. We all talk about, oh, well, this is the modular approach. Each module that we're building does two tons per year. So it's relatively small. And some people say to me, well, why don't you build a bigger one? The approach, though, for scale is to be able to build lots of the same scale, but do that cost effectively. So it's, again, similar to solar PV. When you build a gigawatt solar farm, for example, you're not building bigger solar panels. You're just rolling out lots of the same kind of solar panels that we're putting on our roof. So this is the same kind of approach when we're going this modular is to figure out how to build lots of these at the lowest possible cost. Okay. And maybe that's a good time for you to describe kind of what your system looks like when you talk about each one of these modules. Sure. Okay. Uh, good point. So each module, it's like a A-frame or a tent-based solar panel arrangement. So two panels on each side arranged east-west so the sun tracks over the top. It's got batteries in it so that we can provide 24-7 energy supply to the capture equipment. The capture equipment is sitting within the, effectively, the tent structure that's created by that A-frame of solar. And the capture equipment is similar to other technologies that you might have heard of in the sense that air is blown over the sorbent, which is a moth, ambient temperature, then you close off the canister, 
you introduce heat, you apply a vacuum, and the CO2 is desorbed. And then we're collecting that and doing that routinely on a number of canisters, which then creates a continuous flow of CO2. And then the CO2 we take, obviously it could be used for utilization, but in this case, we're using it for permanent storage because that's what creates a carbon dioxide removal credit. And frankly, that's what's the highest paying market at the moment for CO2 is to have it permanently removed from the atmosphere for storage. And when you talk about being intentionally modular, that's about kind of the size of each module is so small that kind of as you scale, you need to build lots and lots of them. And the more you build, the more you come down the cost curve, like we just said. Exactly. So our first project is one ton per day. So we'll need about 180 modules. And you can imagine doing a run of 180 modules versus our second project, we're lining up for a 5,000 ton per year project, which is a 15 times scale up. We'll need two and a half thousand modules. You can already imagine that doing a run of two and a half thousand modules, when you start to access the economies of scale from doing larger runs like that, and for each module, the number of canisters that we'd be requiring and all of the different pieces of equipment, the components, in some ways it's like putting a car together because you're having things built or building things ourselves and then just assembling them into that module. So when you do a run of two and a half thousand modules, the cost of procuring each of those components and putting them together on a per ton basis is a lot lower than if you're doing a run of say 180 modules. And then as you go forward, so doing a a million tons per year, uh, we'll obviously need half a million modules. That's a big exercise. And the same trend of, well, how would we make half a million modules? You're obviously doing it at extremely large scale and then figuring out how do we partner with large scale manufacturers to make that happen. But as you get to half a million, you can imagine how the cost would come down. What makes this business model different from other DAP companies is because, as you said in your intro, Dylan, we've integrated the energy supply with the capture technology. We won't have that line item of energy supply. So we've effectively capitalized that into the equipment. And what that does is effectively guarantees that it's renewable energy, it's 24-7. We won't have to negotiate with a grid for either the price or the reliability or the grid intensity of that energy supply. So that's what makes it slightly different or completely different from a business model perspective that we got quite attracted to. Yeah. And what's the kind of quantitative impact of that? Does that mean over time your carbon removal credits are less expensive or you have to capture less carbon to have a one net ton removed because your energy is always clean or what are kind of the impacts yeah. of that approach? It all comes into the, the life cycle assessment of producing a carbon removal credit, knowing that if any of your energy supply has associated with it emissions, then that takes you backwards. So with the economics of building a carbon removal project, you want to minimize how much you're leaking through the associated fossil fuels of, say, your energy supply. The other part of it is with energy usage, we want to obviously keep that to a minimum. And the DAC company that has the minimum energy usage is likely to be the one 
that wins at the end of the day. And when I say wins, I don't imagine there'll be one company that's going to be successful. I, I imagine that we'll have a, a range of companies that will probably get to that megaton, ideally maybe the gigaton, but each technology will be suited to a different characteristic, global characteristic around the world. But you think just reducing it, total energy per ton removed is, is going to be one of the key kind of metrics for success. Exactly. Because when you think about our energy system and how we decarbonize the energy system, at the same time, if we're adding a whole heap of energy-hungry appliances, either removing CO2 from the atmosphere or creating green hydrogen with electrolyzers, we're actually making the challenge a lot harder because at the same time we're decarbonizing, we're adding a lot of energy to the grid in terms of demand Oh, and electric vehicles all at the same time. So it starts to make the mind boggle about the, the scale of this challenge. But as we're pretty much clear, carbon removal has to be part of any kind of journey to get to net zero by 2050. Yeah. So we're going to have to find a way to make it work, basically. Yeah, we have no other option. Yeah, I've done a little bit of just kind of back the envelope math, yeah, just to kind of try to wrap my head around the scale of the energy we're talking about. And if you assume one megawatt hour per ton of CO2 removed, which is, I think, a pretty aggressive target for most DAC companies is what I've heard. It's something like, even if you deployed all renewable energy production in the entire world today to DAC, we would just barely be able to get to that kind of seven to 10 gigatons removed per year that we need to, which is, like you said, just kind of mind boggling. And then you add on to that, you could do the same maths with how we're going to make all of the green hydrogen that we need and all of the renewables of the world today. I'm sure you could do similar maths and it just boggles the mind. But we've got a lot of good minds thinking about this and we've got a few decades to get to 2050, but we obviously needed to start not just yesterday, but two decades ago. But we are where we are, so we all know what the challenge is. And it always boggles the mind when you start from where we are and just think of the scale of what we need to do by 2050. But if you then sort of bring it back to, okay, well, say for DAC, if we're at 1,000 tonnes in the 2020s, we need to get to megatons in the 2030s and then gigatons in the 2040s. And when you look at, for example, something like, again, solar PV, I think it's a really good analogy for what we're embarking on. Again, 20 years ago, if you talked about the amount of solar that would be deployed around the world, they would have seen like mind-boggling numbers back then. But that's what we've actually done. So you look back and think, okay, we can actually do this. We've shown that we can do this. And the objective is clear. So let's just get on with it. And I like your approach. You're scaling the energy supply as you're scaling carbon removal. It's just kind of inherently built into what you're doing, which makes a lot of sense. One question I had about that, though, so what's the advantage of physically building the PV cells into your structure, into your systems, as opposed to kind of, you could imagine with every project, you build a set of solar panels over here, and then you have your capture equipment over here. What's the advantage of having them really integrated the way you've done it? Yeah. To start with, it's about that business model of not being just another that company that's looking for renewable energy grid supply. So I think it's a great way of demonstrating the technology and starting off that way. It might not be that at all scales that this is the best way to do it, but we'd be open to looking at, okay, well, maybe there's a different kind of technology configuration that then does tap into a solar PV with batteries. 
It all depends on some of the economics of things like balance of plant, like inverters and utility scale batteries, utility scale solar, and how all that fits together. So with this kind of technology, we could go the other way and we could end up making it look like other DAC companies that need to either connect to a grid or to connect to a dedicated solar or wind supply. But at this stage, we're starting off here because from what we can see, the economics favour doing it in this modular way. In a sense, it's like being not just behind the grid, but kind of off the grid. It's like a decentralised off-grid version of a solar-powered DAC. And anything that's kind of decentralised off the grid, you start by avoiding all of the network costs. So no transmission, no steel in the ground, no distribution systems, no inverters, all of that just goes away. We're just basically building a DC machine so the energy goes directly into the equipment that's needing it. So at least at this scale, it makes a lot of sense. It might be that down the track, as the techno-economics of things like solar, batteries, inverters, grid transmission, as all of that changes, it might change the configuration. But what we'll always be trying to do is figure out, okay, what's the least cost way for any given scale of providing carbon removal? Yeah, and you said it before, but just the benefit of knowing all your energy is clean all the time for your LCA. The other little math I did before talking to you, just because I was curious, is I looked at the average CO2 emitted per uh, megawatt hour of electricity produced in the US at least is 0.8 tons of CO2. So you can imagine if oh. if your capture, to capture one ton of CO2 with DAC takes one megawatt hour of electricity in the US, the average, you know, if you're just kind of pulling off the average grid in the US at least, you're emitting 0.8 tons of CO2 to capture that one, which kind of defeats the purpose. So you're effectively just sending CO2 around in circles, which is, exactly. is not really car, it's not really carbon removal. I didn't know it was that high in the US. I, we in Australia are around sort of 0.7, 0.8. I always thought that the US was lower because it had more natural gas in the system and maybe some nuclear as well. Whereas Australia starting off as quite a coal heavy grid, but we've started retiring coal. So we're on a downward trajectory on grid intensity, but finding that 24 seven renewable energy supply is quite tricky. And again, with solar, I don't think it's good enough just to say, if you're a DAC company, oh, we've got a power purchase agreement with a solar farm, because then overnight, if you're on the grid, you are chugging coal or gas or fossil fuel. And again, you're sending CO2 around in circles. So what the solar powered module arrangement does to start with, like you said, is just guarantees that we are 100% renewable energy, no questions asked. We're not even connected to a grid. And Also, not being connected to a grid also gives us locational flexibility because, again, we can go directly to the storage site and minimize any kind of transport cost. Whereas if you have to tether to the grid, it minimizes how many places you can go or increases, you're either going to have to build a CO2 pipe or transmission infrastructure, and that comes at cost. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. And then what about the MOF? as the absorbent. I'd be curious to hear more about why is that an important part of your system? Yeah, that's a really good question. So MOFs, uh, Metal Organic Frameworks, it's a relatively new area of science and there are many, many MOFs around the world. 
And effectively what they are for those listeners that haven't come across them before, it's a nanoporous designed effectively like a molecular sponge. So a specifically designed material, it has enormous surface area per gram. So if it's something that you want to contact with air, the surface area is just huge. So that's what gives it the concept that it would be an ideal material to capture CO2 from the air. Now, there are a lot of challenges in doing it because CO2 in the air, although it's our main challenge here, it's still quite dilute, 440 parts per million, 0.04%. So water and other molecules are all in way more abundance than CO2. So it's got the promise with that surface area and the potential for CO2 selective materials that can do that job. And there are researchers all around the world trying to figure out how to optimize MOFs for CO2 capture, both in post-combustion capture and also inside environments at the 1,000 ppm level, but also for DAC. So what's exciting as well is we think that researchers all around the world will continue to innovate and evolve their understanding of the best types of MOFs for doing direct air capture for CO2. I think that will continue for a long time. And that also gives us the advantage because we're building modular units that we can switch out MOFs as MOF technology improves. Future modules can have the latest MOF to do the job, but we're not building the kind of infrastructure that, you know, steel and concrete that ends up effectively stuck. That means that we can't change the sorbent as new sorbents come along. We've got the flexibility to effectively improve the technology as the MOFs improve. A lot of the existing systems use, obviously, amines and steam for the desorption. With MOFs, you don't have to use steam, so we don't have that separation of the water from the CO2 afterwards. It's really just a temperature swing, vacuum swing cycle. So that is another sort of simplification step as well. Okay, cool. So MOFs, I mean, is the right visual kind of a, a metal sponge with kind of microscopic porous structure? Yeah, if you imagine a, a lattice, if you look at it under a very powerful electron microscope, you'd see a, a lattice with effectively little pores that can capture CO2 molecules and then release them with heat. So it's the metal part of the MOF refers to the fact that there's metal a metal atom in the middle of the structures, and then you've got different ligands coming off that organic ligand. So it's a specific designed material for the purposes of uh, doing a job, whether it's, in our case, extracting CO2 from the atmosphere. In other cases, it might be extracting CO2 from a flue gas stream or storing hydrogen, or there's many, many MOFs. I should say I'm not a MOF expert, but I'm learning a huge <laughs> amount about MOFs as we go through this exercise. Okay, cool. So my kind of mental framework for direct air capture is you have a kind of a filter substrate and then you apply amine or some kind of chemical sorbent to that. And that chemical is the thing doing the adsorption of the CO2. But in the MOF itself, you're saying there's no additional chemical added to it. The MOF itself is absorbed. There's two kinds of ways you can do absorption with MOF. You can do chemisorption where there is some kind of amine or other material involved, or you can do fizzy sorbent where it's just the pure crystalline structure of the material 
that does the capture and the release. So it doesn't have to involve gotcha. the chemical binding of CO2 to something like an amine, but it can. So there's two fields of chemistry around going the chemisorption route or the physisorption route. Is there risk in designing with such a new technology in mind? And I'm thinking supply chain risk as you try to scale and that kind of thing. Is that something you think about? Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, again, getting back to my venture capital days, I can't imagine a startup that you can do that doesn't involve risk. There's a whole range of different risks that we're dealing with. And I think the key thing really is just to identify, be realistic about what those risks are and then form strategies to figure out how we're going to mitigate those risks. What we quite often talk about, okay, that's plan A, what's plan B, what's plan C, what's plan D, Mm -hmm. so that you know that if you're handling risks, you've got a range of different strategies that you can employ depending on which risks come to fruition and which risks don't materialize, and then you can go down that path. Thinking about your hardware system itself, where are you Yeah, in, in the kind of hardware development process? Where are you? How many units have you built? That kind of thing. Yeah, we've built, uh, built a prototype in Australia and that's actually currently operating, currently taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and it's operating in the sun. But we're working on, I suppose, an iteration where we feel that we can do a better performing version of that. So I we'll call it version 2.0. Once we get to a point where we feel, right, this is at the right level to deploy into our first project, then we'll build 180 of those modules and deploy them into that first project in in the center of Australia, which is the one that we've pre-sold through to Frontier. So it's a pretty exciting stage. What have been some of the big challenges from an engineering standpoint to get to where you are so far? I think the big one is innovating on that energy usage and starting off from, I won't talk numbers, but starting off from where we are and figuring out how to evolve from something that uses maybe too much energy to one where a system that we know will be sustainable. That's been probably, I'd say that's the biggest challenge, but I know we're not Robinson Crusoe on that voyage either, so in the DAC world. So there's a whole range of different approaches to how energy usage can be minimized and I think we've got a, a pathway which we're pretty confident will, will yield good results. Yeah. And then as you look towards scaling, I mean, we've talked about some pretty big numbers of modules as you scale. What do you anticipate being some of the challenges in that path from an engineering standpoint or kind of technology and supply chain, that kind of thing? It's interesting. We will need to leverage the techniques that industries like solar PV and automotive have used to get to scale. When you think about how does a two-ton a year module possibly get to gigaton scale, I think about something like a car. So there's a billion, over a billion cars on the planet today. When you think about something like our two-ton per year module, it's processing about the same amount of air as a six-cylinder internal combustion air. So when you think about all of the air that needs to be processed, to create a gigaton project. And I think you've talked about this on previous podcasts. We think about it as a distributed exercise. So trying to think about a gigaton project is hard. But if you think about a billion cars around the world processing the same amount of air, it's easier to think about it as a distributed system 
with all of these modules in different parts of the world doing their thing. So then it's how do we leverage the ideas of automotive industry and solar PV to actually make these at least cost? Yeah. Do you kind of lay out that path when you think about sort of the growth plans for a Spirit Act? Do you have in your mind, like, this is when we'll get to gigaton scale or megaton scale? Like, is, do you pl- Definitely, I've mapped out to megaton and to do that within 10 years, definitely mapped out to megaton. And we've got a one ton a day project we've identified. The next project we'll do is 5,000 tons per year. We've got a site in mind for that. Then we're thinking 20,000 tons per year and then 100 and then a million. So we can see the pathway to do it. And I think getting from a megaton to gigaton, that's quite daunting as well. I haven't mapped out that second part of it because I think, well, just getting to a megaton, there's 10 years of work. And then, as I said before, there'll be a point where some of these technologies Some of the DAC technologies will be successful. Others will fall behind. I think one of your previous podcasts talked about, well, let's see how that shakeout works. And then there'll be a range of DAC companies and DAC technologies that will take it from the megaton to the gigaton. We're hoping to be one of those ones. We think that our approach is sufficiently differentiated to give it an opportunity in some specific areas around the world where those combinations of land, sun, and storage exist. And there's quite a few places. Obviously, we talked about Australia. We are talking to folks in the US about projects. We're also being invited to sort of have a chat with guys in the Middle East and India and other places. So that's kind of exciting. You can start to see how a megaton can start to go to gigaton as you think, okay, well, here's what a million ton a year project looks like. And then, okay, how do we get to doing a thousand of those. And then the other target people talk about is $100 per ton. Do you feel like that's achievable? I think it is. I can see a pathway to that because it requires a certain amount of cost reduction per scaler and it requires that we get to relatively cheap dollar per module construction costs by the time we're at million tons per year. But it's not out of the realm of possibilities. It's within the kind of scale-up metrics that we saw happen with solar PV. So I can see a pathway to $100 a ton by the time we get to a million tons per year. Awesome. I love your vision. I'd love to ask you the three last questions that I ask everybody. The first is how optimistic about the future of our planet are you and why? I'm optimistic. I think we'll get there. I think we might get there the hard way in the sense of we arguably wouldn't be doing DAC if we had listened more to the science, say, two decades ago and started reducing emissions. But because we've kind of busted that carbon bubble, they always said, oh, if we delay action, then to get there, we'll have to have stronger action and more expensive action later. And I think that's what DAC is. Direct air capture represents the fact that we're now playing catch up because we didn't do what we arguably should have done two decades ago when the science was pretty clear and now it's even more clear. But I'm optimistic because of this level of ingenuity and the amount of people dedicating their lives to solve this problem. And also I think because it's an imperative, we're seeing climate change in front of our eyes and there won't be a choice other than to solve this problem. So I'm optimistic, but it's I'm optimistic 
because of the level of human ingenuity and the drive to solve the problem and to do it for the next generation. It's an intergenerational equity thing for me that we've, we need to leave the planet in no worse a state than what we inherited from the generation prior. And I feel like at the moment we're letting ourselves down, so we need to do everything we can to live up to that ideal. Yeah, that definitely motivates me. Who is another company or individual doing something to address climate change that's inspiring you? I'm inspired by all of the pioneers in this space, to be honest. I think some of the, the ones that come to mind, obviously the Jan and Christoph at, at Climeworks, you know, leading the way in direct air capture, having physical plant on the ground, but also leading the way with an industry drive and the summits that they put on to really make direct air capture a category, an investable category, and showing how it can be done to turn a thought bubble or a master's experiment into an actual company with jobs and people and plant and revenue. I'm really inspired by that. And similarly, my business partners, we talked about Saw Carbon earlier, Matthew Wonkin, who drives that company, it started with a thought bubble of why could we not do this and then grow that up to from a thought bubble into soil carbon methodology here in Australia, then a, a seed round, then a series A round and now heading for a series B. So to start with an idea and then turn it into something real that can attract investment, create revenue, create jobs and start really getting towards that gigaton. And Matthew's inspiring because he doesn't do anything unless he can see that there's a gigaton potential. I love that about everything that we've done in soil carbon, everything we're aiming to do in direct air capture. And so that pioneering spirit of turning ideas into reality is what I'm really inspired by. Yeah, I love that. What advice do you have for someone not working in climate today who wants to do something to help? Oh, that's a great question. And to some extent, it's analogous to my story because I was in the energy industry and yeah, on the green side of the energy industry, but then seeing the potential to do something in a new industry in carbon removal, I think my advice is to say, just go for it because the skills are transferable. A lot of the skills that you might've got in another industry can be transferable to a new industry and the learning that you would do focusing on carbon removal, the amount I just reflect on everything I've learned in the last two years. It's incredible. And it's such a rich learning environment to sort of learn and do at the same time. So my advice would be think about all the skills that you've built up in whatever area that you've built that up in and think about all the transferability that you can then bring to bear into a new area or a new business or a new industry. And you'll be staggered as to how transferable those skills are and how you can bring a whole heap of experience into a new industry. I love that. And you've set a good example for that. Yeah. Well, Julian, I'm really inspired by what you're doing and I love the vision you've set out for Aspira DAC and I'm excited to see, to watch it from the sidelines. I'll be rooting for you. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Dylan. So great to talk to you today. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Hardware to Save a Planet is brought to you by Synapse. To find out more about us and how we develop hardware solutions for the world's most ambitious companies, head to synapse.com. And then make sure to search for Hardware to Save a Planet in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere you like to listen. 
make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Synapse, thanks for listening.